Hello, my name is Tapio Maseba, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 65. First, some headlines. In transport news, the Crossrail, originally due to open in 2018, will now be delayed until mid-2022 and will cost approximately £4 billion more than the initially forecasted £15 billion. In further transport news, as a result of an 80% drop in passenger numbers, Gatwick Airport is to cut 600 jobs, which is about a quarter of its workforce. In law firm updates, Reed Smith has ended its redundancy consultation process, cutting 19 roles, and Linklaters has announced it will let its entire staff work from home for up to 50% of the time. In further firm news, Dentons, Adelshaw Goddard, Charles Russell Speechleys, and Evershed Sutherland have all been awarded roles on the legal panel for the 2022 FIFA World Cup to be held in Qatar. In an update to an episode 62 headline, after going into administration and putting over 1,700 jobs at risk, DW Sports has been acquired by long-standing business rival Sports Direct's parent company, Fraser's Group. This acquisition will save 922 of the 1,700 jobs. And finally, in a Wirecard scandal follow-up, Commerce Bank, Germany's second-largest lender, took greater losses from its loans to Wirecard compared to pandemic-related losses in the second quarter, and the global chairman of PwC has pledged to, quote, aggressively, end quote, review how it detects fraud following the scandal. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. This week's format is two longer reads. In the first read, let's talk about the current initiative of bringing employees back to work in offices. The FT reports that this week, the Cabinet Office will ramp up a media campaign to encourage employees to return to their workplaces. The Office for National Statistics reported that as of last month, 43% of employees are back in workplaces, while 40% remain at home. This initiative to bring employees back is amidst fears of irreparable damage to city centers and metropolitan hubs. And that's really all we need to take from this story. So let's run with that. Week to week, we've mentioned one of two things for law firms. They're either going forward with plans to return to the office at limited capacity, or embracing working from home more permanently. And though we've spoken of the future of work for quite a long time now, we haven't directly acknowledged the ripple effects of this future of work. There are some firms, such as Cooley and BCLP off the top of my head, that are in the midst of office moves and for this reason and others still see the value in offices. However, we mentioned Slater and Gordon permanently going remote with its London lease expiring in September in episode 54. We also mentioned in the headlines of episode 52 that though Evershed Sutherland was planning to reopen, it was also making a long-term strategic pivot from investing in real estate for offices to investing in technology that could in the future influence how offices are used. As a result, there's a wide array of law firm responses to the so-called future of work question, which all present their own pros and cons. But one larger con in this discussion is the aforementioned ripple effect of working from home, which is the damage to the city center. Let's go step by step with what we can call the workday. The first ripple is the impact on transport. With fewer people traveling into the city center, public and private transport suffers, whether it be bus fares, train ticket sales, or fuel used. Next, retail. 
Let's say you pick up the same order of coffee and a croissant on your way to the office. Without that business, even local cafes and sandwich shops no longer have a customer base, and neither do the smaller news agents or other physical retailers that may have depended on those in the city center to do their shopping close to the office. This then affects real estate on two points. Not only these retailers, but of course the market values of the office buildings in these cities that remain vacant. And finally, employment. The retailers in the city center and the redundancies we speak of in companies could in part be as a result of working from home, which may require fewer people to work or may have demonstrated that work can be done more efficiently, requiring smaller teams, respectively. And of course, if a return to the office is on the cards, this includes its own costs as companies attempt to create new health measures to make the office safe. For example, Canary Wharf Group, the commercial landlord of the East London Business District, has spent over £250,000 on making its own office which staffs 500 people safe. Such a cost, and whether it falls on landlords or tenants, also provides a barrier for a return to the office. Maybe this could result in future lease agreements making it clear who is to foot the bill in such circumstances, but in the current climate, who has the leverage? The tenant who has probably learned how to work from home this entire time and may be weighing leaving the office permanently, or the commercial landlord. And so, this isn't the longest story, but it does provide much-needed perspective in this future-of-work discussion. It's not just about deciding which you prefer between working from home or working from the office, but it's also about the ripple effects that both avenues create. And pointing them out in terms of practice areas therefore highlights the opportunities it presents for firms and challenges it may present for clients. And so, if you are interested in a firm, and are aware of their own stance on the future of work, being aware of the ripple effects could provide you with a more well-rounded assessment about the issues the firm and its clients are facing in the next months, quarters, and years. Credit for this story goes to Jim Pickard and George Hammond. In the second and final read, let's talk about what's been going on with TikTok. To start, just in case you didn't know, TikTok is a social media platform where users share short-form videos of all kinds. With about 2 billion downloads around the world, it is one of the most downloaded apps of the decade. And for the purposes of this story, TikTok has about 50 million active daily users in the US, which is about 15% of the country's population. And in case you were curious, there are about 5 million active daily users in the UK, about 7.5% of the population. Point is, it's a pretty popular app that didn't look like it was slowing down until the 17th of July. On the 17th of July, it was reported that the Trump administration was weighing blacklisting ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, by putting it on what they call the entity list. Huawei was famously or infamously put on this list last year, which made it very difficult for US companies to do business with them and drastically changed Huawei's profitability, resulting in a drop of 50 million phone sales in this year's first quarter. Such a ban for ByteDance would mean that U.S. companies would not be able to provide any services, software, or hardware for ByteDance's businesses, which would mean TikTok would not be available on American companies' software or hardware, such as the Android or Apple app stores. This is because of national security fears ByteDance and Huawei presented for the U.S., due to data. Back in episode 32, we mentioned China's National Intelligence Law of 2017, which requires Chinese companies to provide the Chinese government with any data they request. 
And before then, in episode 29, we covered the U.S.'s national security investigation into TikTok, particularly amidst concerns that users of the app, who are also in the U.S. Army, would be providing very sensitive biometric and location data to the Chinese government. And so the concern has been about the degrees of separation Chinese tech companies have from the Chinese government, and whether that link could result in long-term security threats. It's also been why Huawei's involvement with the 5G infrastructure in Europe has been of such concern as well. So, what's TikTok's corporate situation? TikTok, as mentioned before, is the subsidiary of ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. However, TikTok US is headquartered in the US with an American CEO. It's worth mentioning, though, that TikTok's privacy policy states that American user data is stored in servers in Singapore or the US, but the US subsidiary, quote, may share information with the parent, subsidiary, or other affiliate of our corporate group, end quote. And it gets even more complicated. TikTok shares its code and video feed algorithm with its Chinese sister app, Douyin, and Chinese engineers work on both apps. And so this data sharing within the corporate group, which would have once been convenient, has caused even more concern. Which leads us to the 1st of August, where the White House announced that they had finished their investigation, and Trump said, quote, As far as TikTok is concerned, we're banning them from the United States, end quote. TikTok responded to Trump's vow by saying, quote, TikTok U.S. user data is stored in the U.S. with strict controls on employee access. TikTok's biggest investors come from the U.S. We are committed to protecting our users' privacy and safety as we continue working to bring joy to families and meaningful careers to those who create on our platform, end quote. In the meantime, with blood in the water for TikTok, at risk of having to cease total operations in the U.S., other U.S. entities sought after ways to buy TikTok U.S. for its profitable half a billion dollars in ad revenue and, frankly, staggering active user base. Leading the way was Microsoft. And though Trump initially said he was against such a purchase, by the 3rd of August it seemed the U.S. government would be happy with such a sale. Microsoft set themselves a September 15 deadline to complete the purchase. Between a rock and a hard place, by Dance's CEO, Zhang Yiming acknowledged that since the government's first intention was, quote, to completely ban TikTok, end quote, selling to Microsoft was the only other option. In his words, quote, as a company, we have to abide by local U.S. laws and have no choice, end quote. The next day, following Zhang's letter to employees, the 6th of August, President Trump signed an executive order blocking all U.S. transactions with ByteDance beginning on the 20th of September. The executive order read, quote, The spread of apps controlled by the Chinese government continues to threaten the national security, foreign policy, and economy of the United States. The United States must take aggressive action against the owners of TikTok to protect our national security, end quote. This would give Microsoft a five-day buffer between their pledged completion date and the ban of ByteDance's U.S. business dealings. But eight days later, on the 14th of August, a new executive order pushed the date from the 20th of September to the 12th of November, with additional orders that ByteDance delete all U.S. data, then report to the U.S.'s Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States once the data has been destroyed. By the 12th of November, ByteDance will have to sell TikTok and cease any ties in the U.S. From then on, other players became interested in buying TikTok, such as Oracle, but the biggest twist came on the 24th of August when TikTok U.S. filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration. 
The lawsuit was a federal complaint against the administration for failing to give TikTok due process throughout the executive order and ban, and the ban being allegedly ultra-virus, as the law the president relied on required the presence of a national emergency, and TikTok alleges that their business dealing is not a national emergency. The entire allegation is on a page of their website titled, quote, Why We Are Suing the Administration, end quote, and the link is in the description. Since then, the CEO of TikTok US, Kevin Mayer, has resigned. Walmart has pursued jointly bidding for TikTok with Microsoft last Thursday. And last Friday, China's Ministry of Commerce has updated its own regulations, restricting Chinese companies from exporting certain technologies, including, in substance, TikTok's algorithm that makes its feed so addictive, throwing another challenge in actually getting this acquisition done. So, TikTok is suing the U.S. administration. The administration wants TikTok owned by a U.S. company by the 12th of November. Private equity firms, Oracle, and Microsoft with Walmart are interested in buying TikTok. And on top of that, the Chinese government would now require approval of the sale of any algorithms as a result of new regulation. And with all of that said, let's talk about it. First of all, I don't think it's my place to determine what companies are and are not a national threat or international threat. That's out of my wheelhouse. But let's talk about the commercial effect of this story. I think it's worth beginning by noting that this story isn't in a vacuum. This isn't just a U.S. story. This asks us questions about how companies in a group structure can be adequately separated in the future, how far government should go for national security interests, and more broadly, what this means for how data is shared across countries and continents. In July, the UK enforced its own ban on Huawei's technology for the implementation of 5G, and is requiring UK networks to remove all of Huawei's 5G kits by 2027. Does such a precedent mean that Huawei would merely have to spin off its UK operations to calm the nerves? And what does this mean in terms of the future of globalization and global trade? We take certain things for granted, in that till now you could say that the internet was in some ways borderless. But even in episode 29, we mentioned German Chancellor Angela Merkel's interest in developing quote, digital sovereignty end quote, in Europe in an effort to limit a reliance on American companies Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And in that same breath, the U.S. themselves were facing a bidding war between Microsoft and Amazon concerning which of them would build a war cloud for the U.S. military. The war cloud would provide the U.S. military with AI that could make battle planning much more efficient and streamlined, the AI being fed troves of data hosted on remote servers. The Pentagon in 2018 actually outlined in a strategy document that the war cloud would give the military an artificial edge. To fill in the blanks, it would be a way to weaponize data that has been obtained. And considering Microsoft were vying for the contract and won it, it then gives context to an entire German state banning schools from using Microsoft's cloud-based Office 365 out of fear for misuse of any data obtained, which we spoke about in the Why Data Matters bonus episode. And so, this pursuit of digital sovereignty, either directly or indirectly, results in a bordering of the internet which affects how companies are run and can function across the world. If foreign tech companies across the world can't be trusted by governments, this results in smaller companies, slower innovation and information sharing, and potentially lower quality products and services for consumers in their respective nations. 
Further, and I know this is the worst case scenario, it could be the end of the multinational tech company. Stories like this with TikTok add a different dimension, however. TikTok is arguing that the Trump administration's actions are ultra-virus or outside of their powers. This then asks a question as to who should be equipped for such an action in the face of national security, and is such a power even favorable? In the UK, that seems to be the antitrust body's role, with a story that gives these national security fears some credence. In episode 52, we cover the story of Imagination Technologies, a Hertfordshire-based chip designer, which was indirectly acquired by China Reform Holdings, a Chinese government-controlled fund. When the acquisition was completed, China Reform Holdings agreed to be a passive investor, but in April, they were on the verge of appointing four board members linked with the fund, with a view to strip the UK business of its assets and move part of the business and IP overseas. And it would have happened were it not for an 11th hour interruption by Oliver Dowden, the culture sec, demanding the chairman of the company to discuss the nature of the intended changes. The Imagination Technologies ordeal sparked calls for the government's intervention powers to extend beyond completion of a transaction, allowing them to interfere more regularly in situations like a decision that would drastically change or cease the UK business or result in a large amount of assets or data leaving the UK. And at the time, in episode 52, I found that a bit too interventionist, but this TikTok story, essentially ordering a foreign company to sell its US business to an American company or cease trading, is the next step in the chain. Would an antitrust power ordering a company to sell its UK business to a UK incorporated company be too interventionist? Would this deter any or all foreign companies from incorporating and investing in the country? And if so, what then is the solution for countries protecting national interests in the face of private corporations incorporated in countries they deem to have security risk? And in saying all of this, we've mentioned data, we've mentioned the future of the corporate structure, we've mentioned regulation, and we've mentioned potential antitrust powers. But we haven't even mentioned the M&A headache this could yet present for any TikTok buyer. As we mentioned, TikTok shares its code, including the algorithm for its feed with its Chinese sister company, Douyin. One could argue that the code and algorithm is the app. It's what keeps the average user on the app for an hour a day and coming back to it multiple times a week. The new Chinese regulation enacted on Friday would require Chinese government approval for the export of any codes or algorithms. And on top of that, it seems the U.S. government would not want the U.S. buyer to be using the same code as TikTok's sister company. So, without the algorithm and the code, what exactly is any company buying other than the goodwill of the app? And how can the goodwill be valued if it's possible the buyer's new algorithm may take away from the so-called heart of the app? And further, other than a potential bidding war, what's keeping U.S. bidders from lowballing the proposed fees, knowing it's either that amount or ByteDance gets nothing? In short, this does ask some interesting M&A questions, especially about the unbundling of assets such as algorithms and codes for apps and tech transactions. So with that, and TikTok's lawsuit, the story isn't over, and it seems we may have an enforced revisit date of after November 12th, which is the date ByteDance must no longer be involved with US business. But regardless, it does bring up some new age questions about digital sovereignty, antitrust powers, and M&A in the face of national security concerns. 
it also reminds us, in case you needed reminding, that politics and commercial awareness are related and politics often influence business. This entire story, rather political, big ramifications of commercial awareness. Trade wars, political, big ramifications of commercial awareness. Brexit, political, big ramifications in commercial awareness. So it's on us to face the politics and compartmentalize the drama to see the impact it would have on potential clients, firms, and potentially the sectors it relates to for the foreseeable future. Credit for this story goes to Dmitry Sevastopolo, James Politi, Miles Kruppa, Harry Senda, James Fontanella Khan, Russell Brandom, Kim Lyons, Joe Fingus, Thomas Hale, Ryan McMorrow, and TikTok. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description. And the podcast Instagram page is at commawarepod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to contact me there or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week.